slowed alongside the two South Dallas debutantes. He lowered the passenger window and yelled, Blondie! They stopped, so he stopped. The black girl in the blonde wig sauntered over to the car with a kind of sassy attitude he liked in a hooker. She leaned down and stuck half her body through the window. Her skin was smooth and light, more tan than black, and her face was angular with sharp features, more white than black. Her lips and fingernails were painted a shiny red. Her pushed-up breasts were round and full and looked real. And her scent was more intoxicating than anything he had ingested that night. She was beautiful. She was sexy. And he wanted her. How much? What you want? All you got, honey. Two hundred. A thousand all night. She smiled. Show me the money. Clark pulled out a wad of hundreds and waved it at her like candy to a kid. She got in and slid down the slick leather seat and her pink leather skirt crawled up so high he could see her black panties tight in her crotch and he felt the heat come over him. He hit the accelerator and turned the sedan toward home. But his thoughts turned to his father, as they often did in times like this, Clark McCall was a political liability to his father, and always had been. The drinking, the drugs, the girls. Oh, if the senior senator from Texas could see his only son now, drunk and high, buying a black hooker with his money and driving her in his Mercedes to his mansion in Highland Park. Of course, his father's first thought would be political, not paternal. What damage would be done to his campaign if the press got wind of his son's latest indiscretion? Clark laughed loudly, and the hooker looked at him like he was crazy. At least he came home to Dallas to be indiscreet. Still, if his father found out that he had flown back home again, there would be more angry threats of disinheritance. But Clark would be back in Washington before the honorable senator knew he was gone. He laughed again, but he felt the rage rising inside him, as it always did when he thought of his father, a man who wanted the White House more than he had ever wanted a son. United States Senator Mac McCall looked over at his second wife and thought what a handsome first couple they would make. They were sitting in the leather wing chairs, enjoying a quiet Sunday afternoon in their Georgetown townhouse. Across from them on the sofa sat the two men who would get them into the White House. Their political consultant and pollster were poring over the latest poll results and focus group studies and staking out McCall's positions on the political issues of the day. Positions carefully crafted to appease every identifiable voting bloc in America, whether based on race, religion, ethnicity, gender, geography, age, socioeconomic standing, or sexual orientation. Anyone who could cast a vote for Senator Mac McCall. The senior senator from Texas held a commanding lead in the pre-primary polls. Mac McCall's lifelong ambition was finally within his grasp. He glanced down at his hands, still strong and calloused from years of working the rigs. He still had the hands of a roughneck and the determination of a wildcatter, and he was determined, as always, that nothing and no one would stand in his way. He would officially announce his candidacy on Monday. Then he would spend $100 million or $200 million or whatever it took of his own money to win the White House. 
He had learned long ago that with enough money, a man can buy anything and anyone he wants, be it an election or a younger woman. Mac McCall had enough money to buy both. He turned his eyes to his wife again and admired her beauty as if for the first time. He was filled with a sense of proprietorship, the same as years ago when he had gone out into the oil fields and admired his wells, knowing that he owned what other men coveted. McCall was sixty. Jean was forty. He had been a senator for two decades now, and she had been his aide since she graduated from law school fifteen years ago. She was a savvy, articulate, and photogenic asset to his political career. They had been married ten years now, long enough for the messy divorce not to be a negative in his polls. She had no children and wanted none. He had a son, Clark, from his first marriage, the consummate ne'er-do-well offspring of wealth, a thirty-year-old adolescent. Six months ago, thinking a steady job might bring maturity to the boy's life and to get him out of Dallas, McCall had pulled some strings and got Clark appointed chairman of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. But the boy kept sneaking back home to do God knows what with God knows whom in their Dallas mansion. His son was not a political asset. Senator? Bradford, the butler, appeared in the arched entry to the living room, holding a portable phone and wearing a dazed expression. It's Clark, sir. McCall waved him off. Tell him I'm busy. No, sir, it's the FBI from Dallas calling about Clark. The FBI? Jesus Christ, what the hell did he do this time? Nothing, sir. He's dead. Chapter 1 What's the difference between a rattlesnake lying dead in the middle of a highway and a lawyer lying dead in the middle of a highway? He paused. There are skid marks in front of the snake. His Bar Association audience responded with polite laughter and diplomatic smiles. Why did New Jersey get all the toxic waste dumps and California get all the lawyers? He paused again. Because New Jersey had first choice. Less laughter, fewer smiles, a scattering of nervous coughs. Diplomacy was failing fast. What do lawyers and sperm have in common? He didn't pause this time. Both have a one in a million chance of turning out human. All efforts at diplomacy had ended. His audience had fallen deathly silent. A sea of stone faces stared back at him. The lawyers on the dais focused on their lunches, embarrassed by their guest speaker's ill-advised attempt at humor. He looked around the crowded room as if stunned. He turned his palms up. Why aren't you laughing? Aren't those jokes funny? The public sure thinks those jokes are funny. Damn funny. I can't go to a cocktail party or the country club without someone telling me a stupid lawyer joke. My friends, we are the butt of America's favorite jokes. He adjusted the microphone so his deep sigh was audible, but he maintained steady eye contact with the audience. I don't think those jokes are funny either. I didn't go to law school to be the butt of cruel jokes. I went to law school to be another Atticus Finch. 
To Kill a Mockingbird was my mother's favorite book and my bedtime story. She'd read a chapter each night, and when we came to the end, she'd go back to the beginning and start over. Scotty, she'd say, be like Atticus, be a lawyer, do good. And that, my fellow members of the bar, is the fundamental question we must ask ourselves. Are we really doing good, or are we just doing really well? Are we noble guardians of the rule of law, fighting for justice in America, or are we just greedy parasites using the law to suck every last dollar from society like leeches on a dying man? Are we making the world a better place, or are we just making ourselves filthy rich? We must ask ourselves these questions, my friends, because the public is asking the same questions of us. They're questioning us. They're pointing their fingers at us. They're blaming us. Well, I've asked myself these questions, and I have answers for myself, for you, and for the public. Yes, we are doing good. Yes, we are fighting for justice. Yes, we are making the world a better place. And ladies and gentlemen, if you elect me the next president of the State Bar of Texas, I will tell the people exactly that. I will remind them that we wrote the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights, that we fought for civil rights, that we protect the poor, defend the innocent, free the oppressed, that we stand up for their inalienable rights, that we are all that stands between freedom and oppression, right and wrong, innocence and guilt, life and death. And I will tell the people that I am proud, damn proud to be a lawyer. Because lawyers do good.